Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Welcome to Murderous Roots. I am Denise Gielhart. And I'm Zelda. And we are so excited and so nervous because it's our first time out. And um, so welcome. And you're probably going, well, what the heck is Murderous Roots? I know that's my question. (laughs) Well, it, it was something I've been interested in for a while. I love true crime. Been a fan of it for so long. Um, since before it became popular and I also love genealogy so I'm like what if I put the two of them together and start looking into the trees of infamous murders notorious murders whatever you want to say this is what I'm here for I am so excited I cannot wait to hear about some of these wacky people we're going to be talking about and they're equally wacky families this is because I am so intrigued at the idea of like First of all, how, how is a, a, a murderer made? You know, right. like very, I don't think very many people are born to be murderers. There's probably a handful because statistically it probably happens that way. But it's like, you know, there's a, a way people are formed that makes this happen. So I am so excited to hear about what you've been learning. Right. And I've been looking at different trees and, you know, in some cases, the families are kind of boring. So it makes you wonder, how did this person come out of this family? So you, you know there's got to be more to the story that I can't necessarily research. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, yeah. but there are some people with some boring trees. Oh, man. Well, we'll but, just like go to the good parts on those ones then. <laughs> yeah, well, this tree that we're going to be talking about today is not boring. Oh, good. So what um, are we talking about? We're going to be talking about Lydia Southard. I keep trying to say Lydia because it was miswritten several times as Lydia in different places, but it's Lita Southard. Um, but I tend to refer to her as Lita Trueblood because that was her maiden name. Okay. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by telling you a little bit about what she did. Okay, a lot about what she did. And then we'll get into her family tree and Zelda will pop in when she has questions or anything she wants to say because this is just conversation. And Um, I can't help myself. That's true. And (laughs) oh, before I get going, just to let you know about our relationship is Zelda and I have been friends for many years. And it's so funny because when I was doing this, I'm like, oh my gosh, she would be perfect to do this with me. But yet we've never talked about murder before, like on. (laughs) (laughs) But it turns out she was like, yeah, hello. In fact, I don't even think you got through the entire explanation before I was like, yeah, I'm so in. Let's do this. Yep. <laughs> okay. I'm so really gonna, I have to tell you, you know, the, our listeners probably don't realize that what an amazing amateur genealogist you are. Oh, because, like, I literally can throw anybody at you. And it is, amazes me how fast you're able to come back with stuff. That it's like, I had no idea this person even existed in my family history. And you're digging up all this amazing stuff. So 
you know, you got quite the qualifications to be doing this. So I'm, well, I'm super excited. You. I know our listeners will love it. Well, and there's times I do hit walls. You just have lucked into not running into too many of those walls with me yet. <laughs> okay, well, let's get started. Um, on Sunday, October 16th in 1892, in the small community of Keatsville, Missouri, which is in Cheriton County, Missouri. Um, I'm trying to remember where Keatsville is. I think it's to the east of Kansas City area, but it's a very small community. Um, Anne May Trueblood was born to her parents, William Jefferson and Laura Elizabeth Drinkard. Um, she was their third child and second daughter and came to be known as Lita to her family and friends. Um, she grew up there and this community group sat along the Lewis and Clark Trail until she was nearly 15. And I'm guessing Lewis and Clark must have inspired her dad because he was restless. He really wanted to move and find better. Well, if you've been to Missouri, you can understand it, right? <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, being from Missouri, I, I can concur. <laughs> Although there's part of me that wouldn't mind returning there. Missouri but. is beautiful and they have great wine. So putting that out there for the tourists. But <laughs> as you were, what were you saying? <laughs> So he decided to move them to Idaho, of all places. Now, now that I have a problem with Idaho, but it just seemed kind of random. So in the spring of 1907, after a few scouting tri trips, he and his wife moved their six children west and settled in Twin Falls, Idaho. And at this time, just so you know, newspapers back at that time loved to have little stories about everybody in their community, what they're up to. It's almost like a gossip sheet in some ways. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So there's My favorite are reading like the wedding announcements because yeah. you get all the details of the dresses and all the stuff. Oh, I yes. love it. Okay, well, sorry, keep going. <laughs> in, in the March 1907 edition of the local paper, the Cheriton Courier, there's a little article saying William J. Trueblood left Tuesday with a carload of household goods for his new home near Twin Falls, Idaho, where he purchased an 80-acre farm last summer. His family are now in Salisbury and will join him later. Good luck to you and yours, William. Oh, so well, that's nice. Yeah, they didn't go very soon after. Um, so I've got a quick question. Mm -hmm. Do you surmise that because it was in the paper and they apparently were a well-known family, yes. that they had some sort of status within their community that they were leaving? Or... That's a good you know, question. I would think so. Now, they weren't in the paper a lot, but there's other things where, and I was going to get to this, but this is a perfect time. They talk about their son, Oliver, so Lita's brother, Oliver, and he comes back from Twin Falls so he can finish school in Keatsville. And that oh. becomes a whole little story. And it, Interesting. Turns, and it turns out the land that William bought wasn't as good as had been promised to him either. And that became a story. Oh, wow. So they still went huh. there. And then you would hear stories back, like, and the story with Oliver saying, you know, he's returned to attend Keatsville Public Schools this fall and winter. He knows a good thing when he sees it. He informs us that his father raised a fine crop in Idaho this season, but that his mother does not enjoy good health there. And for that reason, the True Bloods will likely move to Indian Territory. Oh, wow. Yeah. But they so, never so, you know, lose. Idaho winters can be pretty brutal. Right. Okay. Wow. But I would think they had some degree of status because there were a few stories, even after they left, they'd be like, oh, we heard from William and he was able to sell all these crops. So huh. it That's is interesting. Cool. 
While they were in Idaho, William and his wife Elizabeth had two more children, making Lita one of eight children. Her siblings were Oliver, Blanche, Everett, Eula, Oscar, Wayne, and June. Now, a few years after they had been in Idaho, a boy Lita knew in Missouri when she had lived there named Robert Bud Dooley came to Twin Falls for her. And they married on March 17, 1912. So this was five years after they moved out there. He came, found her, and married her. So how old would she have been at that point? That is a good question. She would have been 20, almost 2019. Okay. okay. And I happen to have the wedding announcement. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah, it says, R.C. Dooley donned his Sunday go-to meeting togs last week and hied himself to Idaho to bring back to Old Missouri one of the Cheriton's pretty girls who had left him there. At Twin Falls, March 17, 1912, he was married to Miss Lita Trueblood at the home of her sister. And then it said, Bud will find that they're coming back to Missouri. So he went, married her, and brought her back to Missouri and said that he will farm two and a half miles west of Forest Green this year, and his Bonnie bride will supply him with spring chicken and encouraging smiles. Oh, that's delightful. Yes. And so so but, apparently she had a nice personality up to that point. Yes, and she, there was a little talk about that she was considered pretty, attractive, something somebody the boys wanted to mm -hmm. know. And I've seen some pictures of her, and she was beautiful as she, when she was younger. But I love this part, too. Bud Dooley, son, that's the same as R.C., son of Punch Dooley, gotta love the nicknames, is one of our very successful young farmers, respected and trusted by all who know him. Mrs. R.C. Julie is the daughter of William Trueblood, who formerly owned the farm adjoining E.S. Pearson. Ms. Trueblood, while just budding into womanhood when her father moved to Idaho, was known as one of this section's very pretty girls, who had a host of friends and young admirers. Interesting. Yes. But so she was one of the popular girls. Yes, she was. She had a lot of attention. Well, yeah. they did come back. They get, did get to Missouri, but they didn't stay for very long. So they got there probably at the end of March, beginning of April, based on how long it took to travel. Mm -hmm. But they moved in January 1913 back to Twin Falls, Idaho, this time with Robert's brother, Ed, coming along. Okay. Then... In September that year of 1913, Lita gave birth to their first and only child, Lorraine Marie Dooley in Idaho. It's a pretty name. It is. Everything was fine with the whole family until July 28, 1915, when Lita's brother-in-law, Ed Dooley, became violently ill. He was under the doctor's care for 10 days, and then on August 9th, he died. His death certificate listed his cause of death as typhoid fever. Now, before I get too far, I want to explain, I had a deep dive on typhoid so I could understand what typhoid fever was. You know, we're right here in the middle of the pandemic and the coronavirus, and we've heard of typhoid, most of us have heard of typhoid Mary, mm -hmm. but it's hard to understand what it was at the time. And for a number, hundreds of years, actually, there were cases where it just spread. But here's the thing, typhoid, and you probably know this, um, Zelda. I know very little about typhoid, other than you can be a carrier 
and not have symptoms yourself. That's correct. Typhoid, though, is a bacteria, so it's not a virus. And it's caused by the bacteria Salmonella typhi or typhi. Okay. It's caused by human waste contaminating water or food that is later Ew. ingested. So the best way to prevent typhoid is hand washing. Woohoo! But back then you also had a lot more wells and things could get um, oh, yeah. that way. You have your outhouse too close to your well, you're gonna die. Yeah, and how it would spread is that if a person had typhoid or was a typhoid carrier like you described who never showed the symptoms, mm -hmm. well, they would shed the salmonella in their feces and it would continue to spread. The symptoms of typhoid, I found this interesting, were fever, headaches, diarrhea, stomach pains, poor appetite, aches and pains, lethargy, and even some chest congestion for some. And it generally appears one to two weeks after exposure. Now, we'll get back to why I found that interesting as we continue on, because it fits so much here. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, like I said, August 9th, 1915, Ed died. Um, his death, go ahead. Well, no, I've got this question. Okay, so did, did uh, Lita only have one daughter ever, or did she have more than one child eventually? Only one daughter ever. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. So Robert and Lita made the trip to Missouri to bury Ed with his family in Cheriton. Then, less than two months later, Lita had to make the trip again, this time with her dead husband, Robert Budd. He had fallen ill at the end of September and died five days later on October 1st, also with typhoid fever. Oh, wow. Yes. I have to ask, though, I mean, it sounds like typhoid fever could be spread pretty easily yes. if someone, like, perhaps not just didn't wash their hands, but intentionally exposed someone to typhoid. Well, they, they would have to know they had it, though. Okay. So, fair point. The only way you would know you had it is if you had had it mm -hmm. before and you had recovered from it. Okay. And I... If that had happened, there's no evidence, but okay. that's what the death was listed as. Now, again, the symptoms are fever, headaches, diarrhea. A lot of these symptoms are go hand in hand with other things. <gasps> oh my goodness. I feel like that's foreshadowing. Yes, it is. <laughs> so the tragedy didn't end though for Lita. Her two-year-old daughter, little Lorraine, got ill on November 27th, so just almost two months after her father died and died three days later with, you guessed it, typhoid. Oh my God. Okay, so, so she basically lost her brother-in-law, her husband, and her daughter within just a few months of each other. Exactly, within about six months. Less. And yet she never exhi exhibited symptoms of typhoid. Never. Very curious. Yeah. Very curious. So now Lita has no husband, no child, and was alone. But she did have one thing to help her through this time. Money. Ooh. Because not long before her brother-in-law died, he took out a life insurance policy, leaving his brother and Lita as beneficiaries. And soon before her husband Robert died, he took out a life insurance policy payable to his wife. Wow. Yeah. Now, no one huh. suspected Lita's involvement. Instead, seeing her as a tragic figure who lost her family. The thought at the time was that Dooley's, the Dooley's got typhoid from a dirty well on their property. 
Even her father, William, would later defend her with the well as evidence that his daughter was a victim of circumstance. I mean, he wrote a lengthy piece in the paper in Keatsville okay. for Missouri. He's, he was a good dad. He loved so. his daughter, yes. Mm -hmm. Over the next few years, Lita would remarry three more times. And her bad luck continued. On December 20th, 1916, so a, a year and a month after the death of her first husband, she married William Gordon McAfee, who died less than two years later on the 22nd of October, 1918 in Montana. His cause of death was listed as pneumonia caused by the Spanish flu. Possible, but again. Okay. Well, I mean, there was an epidemic at the time, right? Right, so. there was, and it was a pandemic, and that could be, but also one of the symptoms of typhoid is chest congestion, mm -hmm. among other things. So her grief didn't last though, because she married Harlan Charles Lewis, oh, just a, five months later, on the 10th of March, 1919 in Billings, Montana. Well, maybe she's one of those people who just can't be alone, and so she's comforting herself well, and with other be, people. Now, you sometimes will see this in women when they have children because they need a provider for their children. Because mm -hmm. back then, women didn't have very many options for earning money. You right. had to be with a family member or something, but she had no children. Unfortunately, their marriage only lasted four months. His cause of death <gasps> oh died, was attributed to acute nephritis or a kidney oh. failure, basically. You know, kidney failure happens if somebody's like poisoned with certain things. Gosh, I wonder how that happens. That's so weird. Mm -hmm. What a weird coincidence. Yes. Now with each death, there was a new life insurance policy with her listed as a beneficiary. Although <laughs> she was greatly surprised with William Gordon McAfee's um, policy because he let it lapse right before he died. <gasps> Yes. <laughs> I so shouldn't laugh at that, that, but oh my gosh, very curious indeed. Now, how long were they married before he, he like, almost on two the years. Heel? Okay. Almost two years, very close. So a year after Harlan Lewis died, her fourth husband, she married again, this time to an Edward F. Meyer, and it would be his death less than a month later on September 7th, 1920 in Idaho. That would be her undoing. Again, his death was listed as typhoid. So I have a question, because I, I did, you know, I was responsible, did a little tiny bit of research before right. we had this discussion. And wasn't he like in the hospital and getting better? And then she like visited him, and then all of a sudden he takes this sharp turn for the worse? You know, I don't recall that. I just remember thinking, okay, at what point do these men look at this woman and go, you know, her husband seemed to have extraordinarily bad luck, <laughs> you know? Right? Like she can't even be in, like, the same room with them. Well, it's a problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> I bet she got up. really good at faking grief, though, you know? Oh, I'm sure she did. But, you see, her friend, his friend suspected her right away. Oh. See, you got to listen to your friends. Right? Your friends see through all the red flags. They pushed the sheriff to investigate his death. And according to her friends, on the first day Edward took ill, they saw Lita busy hanging flypaper at, at her house and not attending her sick husband. 
The sheriff's investigation led him to discover that not only did Meyer have a life insurance policy, but that he had increased it from $2,000 to $10,000 the day before he fell ill. And to give you an idea, $10,000 back then, I looked it up, is about $125,000 today. Sweet. You could afford the venti coffee at the Starbucks. <laughs> if I liked coffee. <laughs> You're so weird, but that's why yeah. I love you. Okay. The beneficiary, of course, was Lita. So it, apparently it took a few months, but after investigating, Edward Meyer's body was exhumed. Okay. And upon further examination, it was discovered that he didn't die of typhoid. He died of <gasps> arsenic poisoning. <gasps> arsenic? Yes. Wherever did she get arsenic? Hmm, I'm thinking the flypaper. <gasps> because back then, you could boil the fly paper and get the arsenic out and then put it into people's food or drinks. Uh, I bet she knew that. Yes. <laughs> and it was actually, wow. and, and we'll, we have some more cases coming up and other women did the same thing. They ended up exhuming the bodies after that of Harlan Lewis, William McAfee, and all of the Dooleys. And they all died from arsenic. Oh, <gasps> no. She, wait, even her daughter? Even her daughter. She killed her daughter? Yes. Oh, my God. Like, okay, I can understand wanting to off your husband. Right. You know. But, like, <laughs> oh, <you're, laughs> your poor husband. Um, but I totally, like, the fact your that child. she killed her daughter, that's... Yeah. I can't imagine. Because wow. with wow. my girls, I mean... You do everything in your power to protect them, not hurt them. Mm -hmm. But that's wow. what she did. Well, they an arrest warrant was issued, but Lita had disappeared from the area. But by the time that happened, and she used She's a false no slouch. Nope, she used a false name, married again, a name a man by the name of Paul Southard, and left the country for Hawaii. And as I wow. say, left the country because for the listeners, Hawaii was not yet a state, so it was not in our country at the time. Once she was found, the police extradited her back to Idaho, where on November 1921, she had her trial and she was found guilty of second degree murder and sentenced to 10 years to life for the murder of Edward, Edward Meyer. As far as I can tell, she was never tried for the other murders. Really? Yes. How come, do you think? Did, was there any... I, I could not find any information on that. It could be that cost so much and they okay. figure they tried her in one place. It was just easier. And there might have been more evidence. Like the only thing they might have had for the other bodies was just arsenic, but they didn't have any proof that she gave it to them. Okay. Whereas with Edward Meyer, they had the friends saying, well, we saw her hanging flypaper, those types of things. Yeah. Um, so like literally anybody else could have poisoned her family. Right. Okay, I get it. But the story's not done. Oh, no. Oh, there's more? Well, yes. okay, so I have to say, did Mr. Southard start to worry a little bit about his own health? I believe they got divorced soon after she was arrested. He, they were not married that long when they got her. Okay. And, and I, I will share on the website, there's a picture of her with him um, as she's waiting to come back. And he, he left her soon after. Probably grateful he's got away from that. Seriously. Wow. Because it seems like, you know, we, what we know about the men that she married is they were decent folks. Right. You know, they wanted to make sure their, his, their wives were taken care of and, 
you know, wanted to make sure their kids were taken care of and had steady jobs and salt of the earth, as they say. Yes. And we have, I mean, we have no evidence of anything else happening because you would think in her father's defense had her first husband been abusive, he would have said something to the effect, but he mm -hmm. never did. He was just like, she's just an innocent in this. She would never do anything to harm anyone mm -hmm. and that type of thing. But anyhow, wow. so she's in prison and she uses her womanly wiles. <laughs> which, uh, of which we know we, she has plenty. Yes, and got a prison guard to help her and a former prisoner. And she escaped the Idaho penitentiary. Wow. Using the name Zella Rains, she settled in Denver, Colorado as a housekeeper for the Whitlock family, Harry and his mother, and also for his son, Benjamin, as a caretaker. Now, his mother's name is Theodosia. Oh, that's a great name. That's Aaron Burr's daughter's name. Oh, cool. You got to love the names back then. Absolutely. Two months after his mother died, Harry's mother, she died like in January of 1932. Harry and Lita married. But of course he knows her as Zella. Oh my gosh. Well, during this time, the police are like looking for it. It's become national news. I just have to interject here. I'm assuming that they weren't Catholic because, oh my gosh, you have to go through to get married in a Catholic church. I mean, it's like... You got to pull out your certificates. You got to pull out, you know, everything. You have to have people vouch for you. They post the bans. I mean, this was obviously some sort of like courthouse affair. It's all I'm right. saying. I, I, I no. think that's a safe assumption. Um, <laughs> so a few months later, I, I'm, I'm guessing that Harry Whitlock saw the news about this woman and recognized her for who she was. And he helped the police locate Lita and even requested the reward money of $500 from the police. <laughs> this is her husband. Yes, her new husband. <laughs> okay, was, I'm kind of digging this guy. <laughs> yeah. She was returned to prison and stayed there until her parole in 1941. So basically, she was only in prison for the minimum of the 10 years, even with the escape. Okay, so let's let's count up her murderers at this point. Oh yeah. She's killed like five people at this point, right? Oh, more. Okay, because so. I haven't mentioned about his mother. <gasps> there was a small little article I found about Theodosia, and that the police suspected that she had been murdered by poison by Lita, but they never pursued the case, and that was the only mention I ever saw was that they were suspicious that she had been also murdered. There's no confirmation. I mean, obviously, you know, she was able to get away with it a bajillion times. She right. probably thought she'd get away with it some more. So you have yeah. her, what, how many husbands she killed? One, two, three, four husbands, her brother-in-law and her daughter, that six, plus possibly Theodosia, which would be about seven if that was the case. And she spent 10 years in jail. Yes. Dang. Yes. She was released from prison and she married soon after <laughs> a man by the name of Hal Shaw, who later disappeared. There is no record. I did everything I could to try to find him and I was unable to. 
Now, maybe when the 1950 census is released so I can research, I might be able to find him then, but there's no guarantee. Then on the 5th of February, 1958, as she walked down the street from her house in Salt Lake City, Lita died of a heart attack. Wow. You probably saw Lita. all the ghosts of all the people she murdered. You know? <laughs> yeah. Have or, you been to know, Salt Lake City? I mean, yeah. That's, it's a very holy place, a very clean place. Very I'm not even, clean. but I can totally appreciate how clean that city is. Right? So, wow. It's, it's crazy. She drew my attention. I had to do the research on her mm-hmm. and find out more. So we'll go over what I found in her family. And it's kind of interesting. And then I stumbled on something recently because I did this research a long time ago on Lita. Okay. And then I was like trying to make sure I didn't forget something. I stumbled on something this past week. So oh. of interest. So we'll get You tell. The well, tea is good. I'm going to tease you on that one for a little bit because we'll get there. But I want to explain how I start my research, usually with a person. With Lita, it's pretty easy because she was born in 1892. And I say easy because if I have somebody who was born in 1970, it's made a little bit more difficult. And I have to go to more public records. But I usually start with the census records. And I'll look for the person and then I can find the name of the parents. With some of the cases that we're going to be handling, they have a list of the parents and more information in newspaper stories and you can read through and you get more information that way. So I go from there and I start to get dig and I look, use birth records, a lot of death records. I'll go to newspapers, look for newspaper articles, especially those small town newspapers. I love so much because they still beans on everybody, yep. you know, who's having parties and who's not, <laughs> who's flirting with whom. Uh-huh. You know, all that good stuff. And as I get here, I'll tell you more. Let's grab that here. We'll start with her mom's family. Her mom was Elizabeth, not Elizabeth, Laura Elizabeth Drinkard. And her mom she was born on the 9th of June in 1869 in Salisbury, Cheriton County, Missouri. She'd lived a long life, and she's one of the longer ones to live in her family. And that's one of the things I noticed with both sides of Lita's family is that dying young seemed to be the norm. Oh, yes. And if you think about Lita, she died at maybe 66, which isn't particularly old, but it's not particularly young either. But she died and then she was buried in, in Twin Falls and everything like that. She and William Jefferson married six years before Lita was born in 1866 in Cheriton County, Missouri. William, and I'll get more into him later, he died in 1928 at hotel in Boise, Idaho. Do we know what he was doing at that hotel? Well, I have a theory. I think he was in Boise because that wasn't his regular address. Mm. Visit Lita because that's where the penitentiary was. Oh, that makes sense. Now, it says he died of natural causes, but it doesn't say, his death certificate didn't say more than that. But from what I understand, he and his wife were a bit estranged at that point. They were still married, but not exactly getting along very well. Well, I Um, imagine the pressure of having a notorious daughter probably took its toll. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. But when I started to look, Laura's parents were Franklin Drinkard and Elizabeth Ray. And the sad thing is, both of them died before she ever got married in 1886. Franklin 
I wasn't able to find him in the 1880 census or anything later. So based along the census information, I come to believe he was born around 1840, that he died sometime between the ages of 30 and 40. I could probably break it down a little bit more based <clears throat> on the age of their children, but not much. You know, the life expectancy for folks living in the Midwest during that period of time was really only about 55 years old anyway. Right, but so, we're talking he's in his 30s. He had his last, yeah. the last child was born in 1873, so he was between ages 33 and 40 when he died. So that's okay. still fairly young. Yeah. And like average, you, you got to keep in mind with average life expectancy, because a lot of people think, oh, people died young back then. Well, that's the average, because you have to factor in child deaths, and there was a lot of babies who died, or oh, women who died in childbirth. So those affect the numbers, whereas there's a lot That's of people true. who, there were people who lived longer lives. We're not talking a ton of them in the hundreds or anything, but they did live a little longer than you think because those younger deaths really did affect the um, life expectancy. Okay. That makes sense. His wife died in 1881 at the age of 39. So Laura Drinkard was in her she was a teenager by the time her parents had all died. Because she got married in 1886, I'm not sure where she lived at that time, but she was the third child, so it's possible she was living with a sister. She had an older sister who was still alive and married, and so that's my guess. Now, when you get to Franklin's father, so this is Lita's grandfather, his name was Harrison. He died at around age 26, possibly younger. So Franklin would have been a small child at his death. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's so sad when you go through and you realize, wait, death after death, his mother remarried and she would go on to have four more children, but she did not die at a particularly young age. Okay. His mother, Elizabeth Ray. Now Elizabeth Ray, she, her father was Zach Zachariah Ray. He was born in Kentucky and he mm -hmm. died at the age of 53. Not terribly young but not terribly old either. Elizabeth's mother, Polly Paget, died in 1849 at the age of 39. Wow. And it's just a pattern I saw a lot in the families. Now, when we're talking about the people that uh, Lita was related to, mm -hmm. with her immediate family, with her brothers and sisters, I mean, she was one, of, she was one person in a very large family. Right. Did we know of anything that happened with them? Or did they kind of leave quiet, un unassuming lives? Oh my gosh, you just dragged me. You put me right where I want to go. Um, they, I, I looked them up because I like to go down to see if there's more information. And from her brothers and sisters, they all lived pretty dull. I wouldn't say dull, normal lives. There wasn't a whole lot going on, which is wonderful. And what I did discover with that, though, was that one of her brothers, I think it was Oliver, and he was in charge of a store. He was like the manager. I think it was like a JCPenney up in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin at one point. When she's arrested, there's a headline in the Wisconsin State Journal on the 19th of May, 1921. And Lita was called Lady Bluebeard at the time. Oh my. Well, yes. it's Yep, and it said, uh, and, and the title, and I'll show this to you, and I'll have this posted on the website, but it says, alleged woman Bluebeard has brother in Wisconsin. 
And they oh. go on to, and they out him because she was known as Mrs. Lita Southard. There was no true blood mention. Mm -hmm. And it goes on to say, Mrs. Lita Southard, allegedly blue beardist, was taken into custody in Honolulu and charged with murdering her three previous husbands, a brother-in-law and her two-year-old child for the purpose of collecting their life insurance. Mrs. Southard, who is the wife of a petty officer in the US, on the USS Chicago, that would be Paul Southard, is to be extradited to Twin Falls, Idaho to face charges of murder. A brother of Mrs. Southard, Oliver Trueblood, lives in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Oh my God. Well, you know, back then, because that whole eugenics movement was super huge in the early 20th century, mm. it was kind of like, well, if you've got somebody who's related to you that's a bad seed, probably you've got, we got to keep an eye on you too. Because, yeah. you know. I, it's just, I, I felt so bad for Oliver in this because he, mm -hmm. and he continued success after this. This was mm -hmm. in the Madison paper. I didn't see any evidence of it going up to the Chippewa Falls paper. Okay. But it's just, why would you do that? <laughs> Other wow. than maybe what you're saying. So that was such a great question you asked because I was blown away when I saw that. I'm like, oh, that would be uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and that was in the 1940s that that 1920s, came out? 1920s. 1920s. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it's that's pretty, nuts. It's pretty crazy. What I found the most interesting in her family tree, though, was the True Blood line. Her father was William J. True Blood, and he was born in Iowa in 1864. His parents were Benjamin True Blood and Sarah Pauline Landers. As I just dug into his background, I discovered something interesting involving his parents. Benjamin, who was born in 1839 in Illinois, married Sarah sometime in 1860 in Iowa, likely Keokuk County. Sarah, though, was born in 1845 in Indiana. She would have only been 15 years old when they married, possibly only 14. Oh, my. Well, it is Indiana. I'm, well, I'm from Indiana, so in I can Iowa. say that. Yeah, but they got married in Iowa. Okay. But wow. William was 21. You know, that's so gross. Now, yes. admittedly, back then, it was not considered gross at all, because if a woman was able to have children, and, they, and men tended to wait a little longer to get married because they needed to have money to support a wife, and then they were expected to marry rather younger, but it still feels gross, doesn't it? It is gross, because you might think that was typical back then, but it's not huh, to marry no. that young. Mm -hmm. It might, and all the research I've done, and I've researched my lines and everything like that, it is not common to see 14-year-old or even 15-year-old brides. Right. Most oh. brides wait until they were about at least 16, usually 17. Yeah. And even at a certain point, you had to sign to say you're giving permission to your child to marry under the age of 18. Right. And that started a long time ago. Um, and just as an, as an addition to this, to pull it into modern times, most states in the United States still do not have a minimum age for marriage. Right. Which, which is just thought I'd throw that out there. That's we're horrendous. still pretty damn backward. Right. Okay. As you were saying. Unless she got pregnant on her wedding night, it's likely that she married before she was even 15. Because they had their first child in January 1861. Wow. That right. poor girl. Right. Now, Sarah's parents were William Landers and Mary, Marianna Brown, or Mary Brown, she went by sometimes. Her, parent, her dad died in 1855. He was only 39 years old. 
The pattern continues on this side of the family. So after he died, Sarah's mother married William Trueblood. William Trueblood is Benjamin Trueblood's father. Okay. William, Benjamin marries Sarah, who is the stepdaughter of his father. <gasps> oh my gosh. Yes. Were they short on women? I mean, what was going on there? <laughs> and it was like, he married basically his stepsister three years after his, their parents got married to each other. And she was... That's kind of you. Yeah. And she was also not quite 15. Wow. I mean, it's, it's kind of shocking and like... It, it feels incestuous, although... It does. Technically, it's not. Right. I think legally it might be. I mean, I'd have to see the now chart. it might be, but back then everything. it might be. Yeah, back yeah. then it might not have been, but she would have been a, like 11 years old when her parents got married. Mm -hmm. And he would have been 18. And then That's so gross. Oh, so it's entirely possible that he was taking advantage of this little girl well before they got married. Right. And then, and then had to get married to her. It's, it's awful. The that more you think about it, the worse girl. it gets. Oh. Well, they did not remain married, Benjamin and Sarah. They actually split. They divorced. Oh, wow. I don't know if it was an official divorce. Because back then, there's not a lot of records on divorces, and you might see them in the papers. I think more often people were just married again without a benefit of divorce, a legal document, because there was no way to track it. And Well, but I mean, bigamy was still against the law, and they used to like set Mormons on fire for it. So I'm thinking that... I mean, I don't know if they got legally divorced or not, but I would think they would have handled, I don't know. I'm speculating at this point. Benjamin and Sarah divorced. Benjamin is Lita's grandfather. He and Sarah divorced. It's implied, but not proven is basically what I'm saying. In 1865, because in 1866, Benjamin remarried William, Mary E. Williams. And also in 1866, Sarah married another man, William Payton. And they went on to have children. But his, Benjamin's second wife, Mary, she died young at the age of 40. It's just a whole mess. <laughs> wow. Do we know, did, do we know what they died from? Were, were any of them typhoid fever? I don't know because back then they don't have um, death certificates. Mm -hmm. And unless you find something in the paper explaining the cause of death, mm -hmm. it's vague. But it just seems curious to me that people kept dying young in this family. Yeah, that is, that seems very curious to me too. It makes me wonder, did Leah, was she aware of this pattern? Mm -hmm. Did someone go, hey? <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they made their toothpaste out of flypaper. <laughs> Who knows? This is where we get more interesting. So we go back to William Trueblood, who was Benjamin's father. So Benjamin is the grandfather to Lita and William is his, her great grandfather. And he had married the Mary Brown, who was Sarah, that whole thing. Well, they ended up having a child, some children together. And one of them was William L. Trueblood. Not to confuse me more with more Williams, but that's how it goes. So he would have been Lita's grand uncle or okay. great, great uncle or okay. great uncle, I guess. Do you wonder if they were maybe under contractual obligation to use the name William a certain number of times? Well, it's very common to rename a child back then, especially, you know, your son after you're at the father and so on. And there are different interesting naming patterns and it does help with some research at times. 
but it also gets you confused because you think you're on to one William and you find out you're on to a different one altogether. It's just, let me tell you what I found this past week on this blue blood line. I've been on pins and needles. Okay, William L. True Blood, the grand uncle of Lita, he married twice. First to an Albertina Polk in 1881. She was from Germany. Love that name. Yes. Albertina. Unfortunately, she they had two children, but she died in 1895 in Iowa. <laughs> then he remarried in 1901, so six years later, to a Mary, Mary Ellen Frazee, also in Iowa. Now, when he remarried, he would have been 42 or 43 years old, and Mary Ellen was 23 or 24. Huh. Yeah. You know. He likes them young. He does. And from Keokuk, Iowa, they moved out to Charleston, Illinois, which isn't very far from where I'm at. Now, was this her first marriage? Or yes. was it? Okay. It was her first marriage. And they had several children. They had five, I believe it was five boys. All boys, no girls. Oh, poor woman. <laughs> but so they moved to Illinois after their last child, Joseph Henry, was born in 1909. Then six years later, there was a tragic turn. The headline in the Journal Gazette of, the, of Mattoon, Illinois was, Charleston man is found dead in bed. William L. Trueblood taken ill at early hour and later found dead by his wife. William L. Trueblood, aged 55 years, employed in the local plumbing shop, was found dead in his bed at his home at about six o'clock this morning by his wife, who had gone to call him for breakfast. Trueblood, who had been drinking heavily, was taken ill about 4.30 o'clock this morning, suffering from nausea. His wife arose and did what she could for him and then went back to bed. About six o'clock, after she had arisen and prepared breakfast, she went to call him for the meal. She then found him dead in his bed. Coroner Cook conducted an inquiry personally without summoning a jury and found the death was due to the excessive use of alcohol. Oh, my. Now, this is... <clears throat> April 1915, it's the uncle of Lita. It doesn't happen that many months before she kills her first husband. That is very interesting. It could have no tie, it could have a huge tie, we don't know. Did he happen to have life insurance? That I was not able to find, but it gets really kind of sad because his wife, Mary Ellen Frazee Trueblood, gives up rights to all of her children. Oh my God. Why? It could be that there was no policy and it was too much for her expense wise. Mm -hmm. I have found no evidence that she ever took any of her children back at any time. Although I do believe it's possible they came and lived in an area she lived in later. I'll, I'll tell you what I found. And this is how I found out all the children were done because the local paper, of course, tells you everything that's going on. By a contract signed, this is April 26th, 1915, so it's less than a month after his death. By a contract signed Sunday, Saturday in county court, John Reed, a farmer, became foster father of Robert V. Trueblood, age 12, until the boy reaches 21 years old. Mrs. Ellen Trueblood gave her written consent. Two days later in the paper, Ora Wayne Trueblood, 13, was yesterday bound over to Burt Brown, a farmer living near Charleston, until he reaches the age 21. Then a couple months later, there's a headline, one boy left. 
and this is June 1915, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Birch have formally adopted Perry Oliver Trueblood, the six-year-old son of late W.L. Trueblood. There are six boys, so I miscounted, and all but one, the youngest aged about four years, have been adopted into good families. The mother, Mary Trueblood, has tuberculosis and oh. makes her home with a sister near Decatur. Oh, well, that explains that. So Although I have to admit, I am a little surprised considering that in their extended family, the extended family seemed to be doing rather well. Why didn't they adopt those children themselves? Right. Why couldn't she go with her sister with her children? Yeah. Or at least a few of them because they gave up every single one of the children. Oh, could you imagine being four one more. years old? You know, four years old. So you know your mom. Oh, my God, that's heartbreaking. And there were two children that were younger than Perry Oliver, the last one. So I'm not sure which one they're referring to. One was Ernest Raymond and the other one was Joseph Henry. Okay. Um, it's likely they were discussing Henry because they have the ages wrong in the paper based on my research. Okay. And, but okay. who knows? But there were no other articles I could find on where the children went. Now, the mother, Mary Ellen, didn't die for another 30 eight years. So the tuberculosis was temporary. She recovered from it. Wow. Well, at that point, other people had rights to the children, so she wouldn't have been able to get them back. Right. But, but I, I hope she had some sort of relationship with her children, though, because... You would hope. Oh, those poor kids. Well, yeah, and that's poor family. I mean, it gets worse because... Um, There's more? Oh, yes. Oh, my God. 15 years later, in June 1930... There's a headline in the Journal Gazette, Youth Loses Life in Creek near Oakland. Joseph H. Trueblood gets into deep hole and drowns. <gasps> oh my God. An excerpt from the article says, young Trueblood, who was visiting at the home of his brother, Perry Trueblood, in that vicinity, had gone to the creek in the company of Joseph White and Floyd White. On arriving at the creek, the three started to wade in the water. Before going very far, Trueblood, who was slightly in advance of the other boys, suddenly walked into a hole containing about eight feet of water. As he could not swim, he began struggling and called to the other two to grab him by the hand and pull him out. And that was that. He, they were not, he was not able to recover. Now, what I found interesting is at the bottom, it talks about where he came from, who his mother was, and that the mother didn't live in Illinois anymore. She wasn't seeing the children. She had moved to Colorado. Wow. Well, for tuberculosis, I hear that they sent people out west for that. And, and that's possible. But it mentions there are also four brothers and lists Raymond, Frank, Perry, and Wayne. I believe they're missing one of the brothers. Very sad on that. But it gets even better than that. Okay, and this I is just tragical at this point. Right. And I can't help but think that some of this tragedy is related to the fact that dad died. Mm -hmm. And who knows, maybe he was a raging alcoholic and there was problems in the home. Anyway, we don't know. And 1931, the next year, another brother robbery suspect, Frank Warman, Ernest R. Trueblood, Perry Trueblood, and Frank Trueblood were arraigned this afternoon before Justice of the Peace Perry W. Grove for a preliminary he hearing on a charge of burglary. Frank was arrested Saturday for complicity and the many cases of thievery over the last four months in the vicinity of Charleston. He is the fourth person to be arrested. Two of his brothers have been taken into custody previously. No fewer than 30 thefts are being charged up to the four young men, some of the robberies having been committed collectively and some individually or in pairs. And they were all sent to prison. 
Oh my God. Yeah. Did anybody get out of that family unscathed? I, they did, I think, eventually. And I think they came out from it because I looked up and I saw their obituaries and it looks like some of them had families after a point. Okay. But unfortunately, that wasn't all. They weren't in prison. You're killing for, me. I know. They weren't in prison for very long. Raymond Trueblood was having issues. In 1934, Trueblood tells why he burned barn. The razzing he received from friends over the way Seton Cutler had caused him to be sent over the road by testimony before a grand jury prompted Raymond Trueblood, Charleston paroled convict, to set fire to the Cutler barn last Tuesday night. And he ended up going to prison for arson. Wow. Now, a couple of the ones that were arrested in the previous one were later divorced by their wives. One for sure was Raymond, the last, the arsonist. I wouldn't call him an arsonist today, but the one convicted for arson. He was, he was divorced by his wife. It was announced in the local paper that she had asked for divorce. He's currently in jail for arson. The other one was more interesting. Mrs. Maxine Trueblood has filed in the circuit court for a petition for a divorce from her husband, Frank Trueblood. They were married, she says, on July 7th, 1925. And at the time, he gave his name as Frank Flesher. Oh, Well, it turns out the people who took him in after his mom was unable to care for them was a family of Ivory and Myrtle Flesher. So he dropped the True Blood name Mm -hmm. and took their name. It wasn't official in any sort, but it was the case. And I have not been able to find out what happened to him because he made sure not to be able to be found. Well, I have to say if... I, if it was, you know, after 1915 and the name True Blood was sort of getting a little notorious, then perhaps I might be tempted to change it to my adoptive parents as well. Right. And I did find that Frank moved to California because it was mentioned in an obituary of one of his brothers. But it's just tragic after tragedy. This, the True Blood family has not had it easy. Wow. And those True Bloods were cousins to Lita, Right. Right. Wow, that's interesting. That's really interesting. I mean, we'll never know why Lita did what she did other than maybe wanting money and she didn't have much of a heart. I don't know. Well, you got to be a kind of, honestly, a psychopath. Right. To not only do that, but to remain super cool and calm. You know, I'm going to analytically and methodically murder people so I get money and I have no feelings about this. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. that's something that's broken in you, you know, and it's, that's crazy. I wonder, you know, and I'm sure if I like picked up a biography of her or something, there might be information in there, but um, like, did her family members, other than her dad, because your dad's always got to come down on your side, but like, did any of her siblings go, yeah, that's kind of what we thought would happen with her. You know? <laughs> yeah, and I looked for anything, especially her siblings, to see if anybody had interviewed them, if anything came out, and they were just, they were like, we're true bloods and we're avoiding this. Yeah. And yeah. I, I do feel bad for Oliver because he got outed in that way, but who knows, maybe he had told everybody, and they knew yeah. it was his yeah. sister, and he owned it. Yeah, yeah, and that's true. For, for all we know, he said, well, I'm not surprised. She was always the prettiest, she always got her way, and she... That was her way of things. Who knows? Wow. Now, for the, the sake of the listeners, we do have to point out that just because you're pretty doesn't mean you're deadly. No. We don't want people being automatically suspicious of pretty people. Yeah, there are a lot of beautiful people out there that don't ever commit murder. 
Exactly. <laughs> and the lesson learned is don't kill your husbands with arsenic, people. Yes. <laughs> be more Pick something that, that can't no. be traced. <laughs> oh, no, we're oh. not advocating murder, people. We really are. Well, the lawyers make us like go them. over that, delete that. You know, do we have <laughs> lawyers? I probably should have checked that out. Do we have like any kind of insurance? No. <laughs> <laughs> Listen at your peril, people. Yes. And so that's the story of Lita Trueblood, Dooley McAfee, Lewis Meyer, Whitlock Shaw. Wow. And you her have family. taken me on quite the roller coaster today, Denise. I'm like, Good. I'm just in awe. I am in awe. So thanks for doing all this research. Oh, you're welcome. Like, that was fun. Lots of work. Well, this has been lovely, Denise. Thank you so much. And you're welcome. Um, I'm, I hope you have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we hope you join us as we explore more murderous roots. I'm Denise. And I'm Zelda. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And leave us a good review so more people find us. You can also find us on social media as well as our website, murderousroots.com, where murder and family meet.